a parable is a story that is trying to teach a deeper lesson. So there's usually a deeper spiritual meaning that's kind of running underneath a parable. And very often when Christ gives a parable, uh, he's giving it in response to some kind of question that's already in the room. And it usually results in a question being put back in the lap of the questioner. So someone will ask a question, Jesus will reply in a parable. And the result of the parable is Jesus returns kind of with a bigger question that lands back in their lap. And that's usually what, a, a, what we think of as a parable, is these kind of stories that teach, teach lessons, spiritual lessons, or, or push you to a spiritual decision. And that is what a parable is, but um, they don't just have to be stories. They could actually be moments that are lived out. They could be acted out. That's what we call a living parable. Uh, when you actually live something out, and we see this, you can see this in secular life. There's living parables all around us. The Boston Tea Party was a living parable, right? It was physical action of humans to kind of express a bigger idea. I was uh, studying about this uh, this week, and one that kept kind of surfacing uh, in some of the examples was an occasion when Mohandas Gandhi, uh, as a way of protesting in India the tariff on salt, uh, he... Uh, in India at the time, they, in the British Empire taxed salt and forbid any kind of extemporaneous use of it. You couldn't make it. You couldn't uh, glean it or do anything. You had to buy it and pay a tax as a way of trying to fund the British Empire. And uh, Gandhi, as this was kind of the climax of the political movement over there, one day he wrote the, the British head of India and said, I'm going to go pick up some salt and eat it. I just want you to know that. (laughs) And then he started off and he walked over 23 days. He walked about 240 miles to the sea. And when he got to the sea, he reached down and he picked up some undistilled salt and distilled it and ended up in prison. And uh, pretty soon all the prisons of India were full because of people doing the very same thing. And that was... That's the living parable, right? He acted something out which had a bigger meaning and, and people got behind it. And we, we can see this at various levels. A wedding. A wedding is a living parable. The bride and the groom are actors. They're acting. They're, you're doing more than that. But you're also acting. Uh, you're trying to, to uh, portray a bigger image through the motions and, and the words and the dress and all those sorts of things. And in the Bible, we have a number of classic living parable characters. Uh, the Old Testament prophets are, are, are kind of king in this, this realm. Jeremiah, you know, there's, you, some of you are familiar with the time. The Lord says to Jeremiah, get up, go downtown to the potter's house. He goes down and he sees a potter spinning his wheel and making a pot. And it's out of that that the Lord teaches. Or Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel is the, the, the king of living parables. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for 390 days to teach a lesson to the people. He had to cut his hair and put it in three piles to teach a lesson. He had to make a pot of despicable food um, to teach a lesson. Uh, The Lord came to him and said, "Uh, Ezekiel, your wife is going to pass, but I have to ask you not to mourn until these things come to pass because I'm making her passing a living parable. 
The prophet Hosea, the Lord went to the prophet Hosea and said, I want you to marry a prostitute. She's going to break your heart. She's going to do everything wrong. She's going to rip your heart out. And I want, I want you to do this because I want Israel to see how I have been treated. It's a living parable. In the New Testament, we have these. Uh, there's two uh, particular ones that just still continue to resonate in the church. The first is the Lord's Supper. Right? The Lord broke the bread and shared it and said, this is my body. He poured out the wine and shared it and said, this is the blood. Poured for you, given for you. That's a living parable. And the other one is baptism. For we have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. The image teaches. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we we lift up your word. We pray that your spirit would come down. Father, we're thankful that you have taught us in different ways, and we thank you especially this morning that uh, you might teach us through the profession and testimony of these five people. Lord, I lift up Ruben and Kim Nalda, Stephen Turner, Ernest and Stephanie Boyce, I thank you for them, and I pray your spirit of peace on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in a a short series this morning, starting. We're going to spend a few weeks uh, looking at the last week of Christ before his crucifixion. And then we're going to spend a few weeks, starting on Easter, looking at uh, the time of Christ shortly after he was resurrected. And so the next four weeks or so will be around the crucifixion and the resurrection. And this morning, uh, we, we find ourselves um, at a place where there's kind of three scenes, three interesting scenes that kind of weave, weave themselves together. Um, most commonly called uh, the, the, when Christ curses the fig tree. Um, and it, we're going to begin in verse 12. Now, this is taking place the day after Palm Sunday. If you look at the 11th verse, Palm Sunday actually is somewhat anticlimactic, especially if you read the Gospel of Mark. Um, there's all the pomp and circumstance of him getting down to the temple, people laying down the palms. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the time he actually gets there, it's late. So, you know, and he's here. And it's late. And so he gets there and then he looks around, kind of looks at the temple, and he says, all right, let's go, guys. We'll be back in the morning. And that's, that's Palm Sunday. Uh, bet you didn't know that. Uh, but it's the next day that the fireworks start to kind of shoot off in the temple. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in 12, and I'm just going to read through 25. And you're going to see three scenes. You're going to see a scene with a fig tree. You're going to see a scene at a temple. And that's going to kind of end back up at the fig tree and the third scene. Let's read it. The next day... As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. That's scene one. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill them, kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. That's scene two. Scene three. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Those are the three scenes. Now, this can be a challenging um, story, particularly because of scene one, because in scene one, we see this occasion where Jesus, uh, some call it the miracle of destruction. This is uh, his miracle of destruction. By his own divine power, he destroys the tree. He sees it, he's hungry. He sees it from a distance. It appears as though it is going to have fruit, but when he draws close, he realizes it doesn't have any fruit. And he curses it. It certainly seems that he curses it. He's not simply kind of telling the future. Uh, the tree went from, like, healthy tree to a withered tree overnight. And that can be, that can be uh, difficult for some, some of us, or maybe all of us in some ways, to kind of grapple is why Jesus would kill this. This is weird. This is one of the only times I ever see that people have compassion for a tree. <laughs> it's, it, no, you know, we, we, look at this. We chop down trees all the time. But somehow, this poor little fig tree is like, man, why did Jesus have to go do that? This, this, if this tree had a, a Facebook page, it would have a fan page. It would have all these friends. And there would be some political action group against the withering of the fig tree. And what makes it a little harder to understand is it wasn't even in season, right? I mean, if you read the text, Mark says it's not even in season, so it's not the tree's fault. It's not like this is in the middle of fig harvest, and Jesus gets there, and this tree is dysfunctional. It's not even in season. And this can make us uncomfortable. Like, why does Jesus take his anger out on this tree? Is Jesus petulant? Is he in a bad mood? He's a bad mood Messiah. You know, it's his last week. He wakes up hungry. He's just in a bad mood. You know, got to go back into Jerusalem on an empty stomach. Is that what's going on here? I mean, it, there's a sense that you can, I mean, sometimes we jump to that, that kind of angle. Is, is Jesus just kind of pours all of his anger out on this poor, innocent little fig tree. 
Before we kind of land there, we need to ask, is petulant in keeping with the character of Christ? I mean, we as, we as the faithful I certainly have to ask this question. Is, is, is Christ being petulant consistent with who he is? Certainly, in trying to answer that question, we need to recognize that Mark, the author of this book, is, doesn't think that Jesus is petulant. Mark says from the very beginning, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark thinks that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God. So, obviously, Mark's not being objective. He's not a cynical reporter. He's not somebody staring in at Jesus trying to figure out what's going on. Mark has decided in his heart that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and he put this in here. It makes it very hard to think that Jesus is being petulant. It's also important for us to realize that there's many times where Jesus has been hungry, and he hasn't been petulant. He can go at least 40 days without figs. We know this, right? Because when he's being tempted by Satan, is not the first temptation, hey, I know you're hungry, man. Just turn these rocks into bread. If you're the son of God, you can do that. And what does Jesus say? It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. And there's a second time, you know, there's, a, there's an occasion when he's sitting with the Samaritan woman at the well and he's having this conversation. And actually the reason they stopped there was because they were tired and hungry. And the disciples went into town to get something and that's what gave rise to this conversation. Well, when the disciples get back and they're eating dinner and they look over, Jesus isn't eating. And they're, Jesus, we had dinner, aren't you hungry? And that's when Jesus says, like, I have food you don't even know about. Do the will of the Father. Look at the fields. They're white with harvest. I mean, he has this, this sense of his physical appetite is quenched by his nourishment of the Spirit. Both of those would make us think that he's probably not in a bad mood. Besides, he fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. He could have just grabbed the leaves, you know, fig pie, whatever, you name it. He could have thrown the leaves up and, you know, manna would have fallen. He is the manna. He is the bread of life. He is all of these things. So it seems unreasonable that the author of a book proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah of the world, the Son of the living God, who can go great distances without food because he's faithful and loving, who can, in fact, create food and share it in abundance, extravagant abundance, would on this morning wake up and get bent out of shape at a fig tree which is out of season. It's highly unlikely that this is a bad mood Messiah. It may be something else then. What if it is a lesson? What if it is a living parable? Let's just assume that this is a living parable for a second, that Jesus is actually trying to teach us in this moment with the cursing of the fig tree. And you might say, how would, that, how would we know that? Here's a few ways that we can suspect it. First of all, this is one of the few times where the Gospel of Mark has more detail than the sister Gospels. So anytime, that, anytime Mark does that, Mark's a short book, and it's to the point. But anytime he's more poetic than the brethren, Matthew and Luke, 
Anytime he does, he's more detailed, that's, that should give rise to you to go, what? Anytime he, he kind of invests a little more energy, there's something else happening. So that's a, that's a cue, by the way, that not just more is here, but so much more is here. Also, the formatting of the way the narrative is given is unique. Did you see? You have the first occasion with the fig tree, and then you have this occasion at the temple, and then you have this second occasion of the fig tree. Do you see that? In other words, the fig tree brackets this story of the temple, which seems to kind of lend, kind of offer us or encourage us to say, maybe the truth to be seen can be found by investigating kind of what unfolds with the life of the temple. In fact, it even goes temple, fig tree, temple, fig tree, temple, is how the narrative goes. That the fig tree may in fact be dealing with the issues of the temple. And so with this knowledge, let's look back at the story. Let's look back here and see, just at this first scene, see maybe what we can see. Let's assume for a second that it is in fact a spiritual story, that Jesus isn't bent out of shape of this fig tree, but that this fig tree is withering so that we might know. Okay, let's just assume that. What do we see? We see that it starts with God having an appetite. God has an anticipate, a desire to be fulfilled. That's how this starts. God is going. God is on his way to the holy city with an appetite. And he sees in the distance something that gives his promises, the promise of fulfillment. From a distance, the fig tree promises nourishment. It's making a promise. It has leaves from a distance, maybe, maybe. It has the, the appearance of faithfulness. But as he draws close, what he finds out is it is, in fact, fruitless. So from a distance, he's coming, and he has this desire to eat. And by the way, we should recognize from the baseline that the purpose of a tree is not simply to be a tree. The purpose, and this is where we can kind of step up on our pedestal as humans, the purpose of the tree is to feed us. God made creation for us. Behold, Adam, I have given you every tree in this garden, the fruit of all these trees for you to eat, except for that one. But the fig tree wasn't that one. Right? I have given you these, these trees with this fruit to eat. In other words, the purpose of the tree is to feed the eater. And the Lord looks at this tree which promises to kind of feed him because it's been purposed. It's been planted and watered and cared for by the maker. And so it makes this promise. But in fact, when he arrives, it has nothing. Maybe that's how it relates to the broader story. On closer inspection, this, it has profession, but it has no practice. This is what Luke 3 says. It's, Luke writes this, or Christ says this in the Gospel of Luke. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down 
and thrown into the fire. The Lord's saying, don't herald your origin. Be fruitful. Still, some of you might say, yeah, but it's out of season. It's still not fair. That's a good question. I think there's, there's two ways to look at this. First of all, maybe Mark is telling us, he's the only one, by the way, who tells us it's out of season. I think Mark tells us it's out of season in part to let us know that it's a parable. In other words, Jesus didn't really expect there to be figs. I mean, almost like a cue. It's a cue even for the disciples that something else is going on here. So maybe that's at work, but I have to say there is irony. There is irony, especially among our kind of people that would complain about God coming out of season. First of all, does God ever come out of season? No. We are out of season. But, but we are the very kinds of people who plan to get faithful tomorrow. Our, our season of faithfulness always starts tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to do that. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to do that. I'm going to get to this place when tomorrow, you know, I have this New Year's resolution, but by the time you get to June and you realize you haven't done it, you'll just kick it to 2013. And in 2013, well, then you'll get faithful. That'll be the season of my life where I'm faithful. Augustine said it this way. When Augustine in his confessions was confessing, he would joke, personally, he would say, Lord, make me chaste, but not today. We always want to be uh, the season. We always want the season. We're out of season so often with the Lord. And, and our kind of the way we satiate ourselves is, is we'll enter into a season of faithfulness. You know, I know I need to be praying more uh, tomorrow. And in fact, I think the reason we do this is because we think that we are trees that are planted for the purpose of ourselves. That somehow God planted us so that we could find purpose in ourselves. And so it isn't that we're not in season. We're just not in God's season. But we have all kinds of seasons, don't we? We, we are the people, okay? And I'm not slamming this per se, but I am saying if we don't slam ourselves about this, we're wrong. We are the people that have phases and plans for everything in life, some things that should not be planned. So some of you want to get... You want to do this before you get married. Right? I'm not saying it's wrong per se, but just watch, watch the trend, and then we'll critique the trend. We want to do all this before we get married, because this is the season for this. And then we have the season of marriage, but that doesn't mean it's the season of children. It's the season of marriage. You know, you don't want to get married and have children. I'm not, I'm not sure God felt that way. He kind of said, wait, isn't that the point? But we don't want to get married and have children. There's all these things we want to do. We want to be able to go everywhere. And so we have that season of kind of joyful bliss in our marriage. And then we have the season of kids. And then we have to, you know, because, you know, because we can, we say, well, do we want to have kids in close concession? Or do we want to have a kid in four years and a kid in four years? Because we have to worry about those seasons, right? We're regulating our seasons. And then we do that, but we really don't have time to spend with our kids because we're in the season of work. And we're working so that we can spend time with our children. But by the time that season passes, we're in the autumn of our children and we're in the spring of having enough time to work with them. But, oh, well, that's passed. But now we're in the season where it's not really a time for the Lord. We're in the time for visioning for our retired future. 
And then we get to our retired future, and then we're in the season of this, and we're in the season of that. We're always in our season. Can we not critique that trend? The Lord gives us parable after parable of live and behave as though I come tomorrow. Really, tomorrow. Live and behave as though I am on my way. Always be in season. Are you in season? Or are you going to be faithful to the Lord tomorrow? That's the question. And all of this has transpired on the way to the temple. Let's see what happens at the temple. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So he finally gets, he's on his way to the city, this glorious city, the city of David on the city on a hill, the city with the brilliant temple, the the magnificent temple that's been built up there, that gleaming in the sunlight, shining for all the nations to see. And he goes into the court of the Gentiles, which is a 30 plus acre courtyard in excess of 30 acres, as a way of God spiritually welcoming all the nations to come before him and pray. It's not exclusively for the Gentiles, but it is the closest someone, a member of the nations, can ever draw to God is this court. They cannot get closer. This is God's huge open arms to the whole world saying, come to me. And he comes into the court of the Gentiles, which is where most of the religious discourse would happen because That's the place where you could get all sorts of people. And he enters there, and it's in this place when he looks around, does he see something that is a sacred place? Does this look like a sacred place to him? No. It looks like a marketplace. It's been co-opted as a marketplace. You have money changers there. You have people selling, get your doves. Holy doves. You have them going on there. You have, you have people who are using it as a shortcut. You see, he says there's people who are meandering across it with their goods. It's, it's big, right? Imagine you're living on the east side, and you bought a bag of grain on the west side, and you come up to this huge wall, and you have to walk 300 yards that way, 900 yards that way, and 300 yards that way, or you could just cut across the sacred space. You see, he looks in and he sees. He sees people meandering across the sacred space, this court of the Gentiles, in order to cut corners, in order to make it more convenient. They're using this place that God has made available to all the world to come and receive forgiveness. They're using it so that they don't have to spend as much time commuting. 
And Jesus responds. And he's not so much, get this, he's not slamming, I don't think, the changing of money. And here's why, by the way, just informationally. Taxes had to be paid to the temple. The Roman coin had the face of Caesar. The Jewish priesthood would not accept that coin. And so when you came, you had to go and exchange your money for a non-Caesarish kind of coin that that they could receive. And of course, there was a slight markup uh, on the exchange. But that, that's what was happening with the exchange of money. And the purchasing, I, I don't think Jesus is necessarily against that. And I don't, certainly don't think Jesus is against the purchasing of animals for the purpose of sacrifice. Because this is the week leading up to the Passover. And there's people all from all over the world who have traveled here. Do you honestly think that you flying into Jerusalem would have your bag of pigeons? Your goat. You're flying in. No, you sell your goat at home, you get the money, you go to Jerusalem and you buy a goat. So I don't think the Lord's necessarily against that either. That's not what's at issue here. What's at issue is where it is happening. Is they have taken the sacred space of God and they've turned it into a marketplace. In fact, we know, we know from history that on the Mount of Olives, there were numerous marketplaces for the changing of money and for the purchase of sacrificial animals. We know that, that right outside, you could have purchased them. And in fact, many believe there's good evidence that this, this institution of trade and selling in the, the Gentile market or in the court of the Gentiles was instituted in AD 30, so just only a few years before Jesus even shows up. And the reason it was instituted was to get a slight markup. You can come in with a pigeon that the priests might find a blemish on, but if you get their pre-approved pigeon, dove, why? It slightly costs more, right? But then you knew it would be certified, certifiably pure before the priesthood. 100% guaranteed. Jesus is complaining about where because what they have done is they have taken a place that was designed to foster a relationship with God and they have turned it into a transaction. What they're doing for all the people is they're saying, your relationship with God can be boiled down to a financial transaction for you simply to do these these three or four ritual steps. That's all you need to do. This place was designed for prayer. This place was designed for reflection. This place was designed so that all the nations could come in and seek the Lord. And now, when you're sitting down, it's get your pigeon. Real quick, you get from this line, and you could go to this line and, and pawn the pigeon off. And someone would say, your sins are forgiven, and you're on your way. This, this is... It's a corruption of the relationship that God wanted with his people. All of this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. What is the source of forgiveness? Is it the death of an animal? I mean, ask yourself, what is the source of forgiveness? And I, I, don't, I don't care if you're Christian or not. We all, we all have done things that are wrong. 
most of us have done things that even by our standards are heinous. And all of us, if we were honest, would say we have at times been wicked and evil. What is the source of forgiveness? Is God really hungry for the flesh of animals? Or is he hungry to receive people who come for forgiveness? My house has been called a house of prayer, but you have made it this this marketplace. It's a beautiful temple. It's impressive from a distance. It gives the promise of fruitfulness, but when Christ walks in it, he sees nothing. He sees barren fruitlessness when he walks in. This is what the prophet Hosea says about, about the failing of Israel. He says, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit. At the gleaning of the vineyard, there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land Not one upright man remains. And he ends with this. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Jeremiah 8 says this. Speaking about the failing of Israel. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Jesus says it this way. On the day before, this is Luke's account of Palm Sunday, is Jesus looking down at the city and saying, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, it says he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day that what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He was out of season. I have to wonder from our church perspective, the Christian life perspective, how sometimes do we get in the way of this? You know, the perversion, the perverse examples are easy to see. The false prophets on television with the credit card number and the phone call, right? I mean, that's the obvious, egregious failing of, of the faith, of call this number, give this amount, sow this seed, and reap this blessing. And clearly, that's an egregious example of this. But, but how, how, how many other ways do we do this? How many ways do we say, just because you're here today, you're good? That can be just as shallow. Just because you're here today. No. This place is for prayer. Meaning, You need to come to meet with God, not just come. We'll see this in the third scene. Let's look at the third scene. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. 
Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he said will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, this third scene, it, it starts kind of dealing with the fig tree, and then it, it begins to fray away from the story. In fact, this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where he deals with prayer. So what actually he's done is he's grabbed some of the various teachings of the Lord on prayer, and he's merged them here together, and he's created a conversation. But we find these other things in other Gospels variously disseminated at different places. So Like in Matthew, when you read the Lord's Prayer, it ends with the conversation about forgiveness, doesn't it? It appears that Mark has said, this is a good, since I'm only going to talk about prayer in one place, I'll put it here. So it starts with the fig tree, and then it kind of heads towards prayer, and towards this conversation of prayer. But it does it in a a way that I think allows us to make a connection, uh, to continue to look back. Um, It does this in this way of saying, have faith, and the faith that he's talking about is evidenced by prayer, And the prayer that he's talking about is evidenced by a forgiving spirit. That's what he says. Have faith. And that shows up by the fact that you pray, which is understood by the fact that you forgive. That's kind of the pattern that he gives in these remaining verses of 22 to 25. is faith, then prayer, and then forgiveness. And they they all kind of edify this idea of what is, is faith. And if we think of it that way, we can see that what Christ is doing, what Christ is doing for Peter is explaining for him the source of power. Peter's saying, you just, remember that tree? You just said something and it happened. And Jesus begins to describe the, how we speak with authority, which can certainly be compared to the fact that he's sitting just he's on his way back to the temple, and he just came out of the temple. And the chief concern among those people in the temple is, on what authority do you say this? Our fathers, Abraham and Moses, they said, how do you come along on what authority? And Jesus begins to describe this. It's almost as though he's saying, Peter's, that, that Jesus is using this opportunity to say, in lieu of the temple, which is worthless, it's withering, it's cursed, In lieu of that, let me tell you on what authority the power of God can be experienced. The power of God comes through the heart of prayer. And the heart of prayer comes through a relationship based upon forgiveness. Which is everything the court of the Gentiles was trying to do. power of God is faith, and that faith is expressed through prayer. You know, if you tell me that you believe, but that you can't pray, I would be alarmed. I would not say that you don't believe. I would say that you don't believe what God wants you to believe. If you told me that you believe that God gave you salvation, but that he still feels in your life unapproachable, 
like that you don't have relationship with him, I would say, then, then on what basis do you have a sense of faith that the faith that God desires is a faith that's based upon relationship? It's not a faith that's based upon a transaction. You tell me that you believe that God's going to save you, and I say, why? And, you say, and, and prayer's not one of them. You say, well, I come to church, and I believe these tenants, and I do this, and I do that. There's a danger that God, at the end of the day, may say to you, those are transactional. They are not relational. I am not hungry for these things. I am hungry for relationship. It is the soul that prays that God receives. It should be that sort of disposition. But some of people, they, they have a difficulty approaching God in relationship because they have a difficulty appreciating forgiveness. Somewhere in their mind, somewhere in your mind, you still think that God is mad at you and that you're just trying to squeak in. God did not build the temple to express anger. God built the temple to express love. It's not God's anger that sent Jesus. It's God's love that sent Jesus. Look, God didn't come to judge. We stand judged already, do we not? We have, without the help of Jesus Christ, made infractions upon, against the divine God. We've done things our own way. We've been our own tree for our own purpose and our own season. We've done all of that just fine ourselves. Jesus has come in order that that might be forgiven. The whole purpose of the temple is to express forgiveness. The purpose of the temple is to express, not forgiveness, but so that you could come into relationship and be prayerful and know the living God. Not simply to engage in some kind of how to get myself saved transaction. Is that your faith? Do you have the faith that desires to know God, which is the faith that is anchored on forgiveness. Jesus, the Lamb of God who take away, took away the sins of the earth, is the anchor of our faith, is the image of forgiveness. Is, is he the one with whom we have a relationship with? If not, your faith has no authority. In light of this living parable this morning, I would ask you, what season are you in your faith? Christ came today. Would he find you with fruit?